Hello, I'm Lisa O'Neill, and you're listening to The Matriarchitects. The Matriarchitects podcast and platform highlights changemakers who are building a culture that respects, values, and celebrates women. These individuals and their stories offer an antidote to the hard times we live in, showing us that new ways of seeing and being are not only possible, but are already here. Thanks for joining us. Let's build together. Our guest today is Carmen Maria Machado. Machado is the author of Her Body and Other Parties, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and a winner of the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. Her new acclaimed memoir, In the Dream House, uses inventive form to excavate and explore an abusive queer relationship. The Dream House exists both as a physical place and as the site of an emotional and psychological maelstrom. Machado's memoir, told non-linearly through hundreds of lenses, mimics the disorienting process of being immersed in an abusive relationship. Although the memoir's content is intense and heartbreaking at times, the power of Machado's writing pulls the reader in and forward. As she notes in the book itself, There are very few narratives of abuse within the context of queer relationships. Her book is a beacon for survivors. In our conversation, we talked about embodiment in writing, her process writing in the dream house, the intensity of the times we live in, and some of her sources of inspiration. Carmen, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. So I was wondering if we could begin by you talking about where you first learned ideas about femininity and what it meant to be a woman in the world. Oh, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I I, I think... I mean, I feel like it's like, how do you even begin to answer a question? Like, cause like, what is femininity? Right. <laughs> right. Right. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I think the, a lot of models that I had for me, what most people would think of femininity came from my mother and my grandmother. Um, and it's definitely a sort of, there's sort of a high femme aesthetic that I've definitely internalized quite a lot. I mm-hmm. think from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think. I think in that sense, in that very superficial sense, I think that's, it. you know, there's a pretty clear line mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. How has that evolved for you over time? Well, I, I think just that the question of what is it, what is being, what does it mean to be right. feminine or what is femininity is, is sort of just a question that is like at the center of a lot of like what I think about and what I talk about. And, and, and so I feel like now it's like far more complicated. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. I think so. especially as it intersects with queerness too. There's like a whole other negotiation and you know, and a whole yes, other totally. conversation and uh-huh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think and I think, you know, I have drifted so far from what would have been my mother's idea of femininity or my grandmother's idea of femininity in, in even in the fact that I am gay, like in the fact that I sometimes 
I definitely like think differently about like sometimes I want to be more butch I want to be less feminine mm-hmm. looking like I, you know I, I I feel like my relationship with like my gender and with gender in general is like very fluid and so I yeah so I feel like it's now it's just it's simply become far more complicated um and it's more complicated and then this sort of node of like information about femininity is like one piece of it you know right right Um, so yeah 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 well one of the first pieces that I read by you was the trash heap has spoken in Guernica and Mm -hmm. I love that essay for the way that it roams uh you know from your your grandmother's epic jewelry to Fraggle Rock and then you know navigates talking about size and fatness. And I saw you speak at a panel at AWP, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, and you were talking about how you think your writing is better because of Mm -hmm. and not in spite of your fatness. Mm -hmm. And the idea of having, you said, I have a fat mind, which I loved. And you kind of echo that. That's also present in the essay. It felt really validating and liberating as a you know, a fellow fat woman writer to think about it in that way. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that idea and that essay. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, that essay was sort of my first attempt to really articulate a lot of feelings and thoughts I'd been having about fatness that I had sort of been developing over many years. And, you know, I always felt like the writing that I was reading about fatness was never sufficient to me. It was never very Mm -hmm. interesting. It was always just like, we should be able to wear nice clothes too. And I was like, well, yeah, of course, duh. But like, what, what, <laughs> what, what's beyond that, you know? And, yeah. and I felt like the discourse, the discourse was either, it was not, it, to me, it was either not satisfying or it just didn't focus on the things that I thought were interesting. And I was, you know, really struggling with, with trying to figure out my own feelings and thoughts about it. And that essay was an attempt to begin to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was that was sort of where that essay came from, and I wrote it after I had written my story Eight Bites in my first collection, mm-hmm. um, which was the first time I ever written fiction that involved the body in that way. And so, some somehow between that short story and that essay, I think I managed to say a lot of things that I've been trying to articulate and sort out over the course of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I thought about a lot was like the idea of the fat mind and what what basically what it means to take up space. Mm-hmm. or to choose to take up space. And so I sort of distinguish, it's like, well, the fat body is like sort of this inherently excellent thing that like displaces more space than a body that is smaller. Mm-hmm. And then if you do that with your mind deliberately, then you are how you have a fat mind. You are like claiming the same space for yourself psych- psychically and psychologically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is is really important because we we really have a lot of very, very fucked up ideas about Fat people being stupid and, and you know, the way we talk about fat people, even in, in supposedly like intellectual professions where like bodies aren't even really being looked at a right. lot writing. Um, it's still this like very strange thing that people focus on and it's really intense. So I, I was just really interested in that. And it's been really good to get to like talk about it and write about it. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I feel like I think about your writing and how layered and often lush it is in imagery and the prose. And it, yeah, I just, that makes me think of that too. Um, mm-hmm. And how much of your writing focuses on physicality and particularly women's physicality. Mm-hmm. And what I like about when you write about your own body, like in unruly adjective, or when you write about in um, her body and other parties, 
there's a sense of to me uh rebelling against containment mm-hmm. um that i really appreciate uh so yeah yeah i mean i definitely i feel like i feel like for me the thing that is so important is like you know we get so in our heads about <laughs> about like what we should and shouldn't look like and i feel like it's just really i feel like the thing that keeps me sane around my own body in all of its like you know grossness and beauty and bodiliness is like being like oh it's this physical thing that's here and it moves through the world and it like leaks a whole bunch of fluids and is like generally kind of weird and it's weird that this like weird like ambulatory like animal like carries me around mm-hmm. um and also is me but is not me i mean i feel like the physicality part of it is so important to me mm-hmm. um yeah mm-hmm well, I was hoping we could we could talk a little bit about uh, in the dream house, and I just wanted to say thank you for writing it. I feel like it's a book that I really craved and need, and a lot of people really need, and so I just have a I have a lot of gratitude for the book. Yeah, yeah, and and it, and it was interesting because I I really even though. It's the subject matter is and the content is very difficult. It was enjoyable to read. And a lot of that had to do for me with the the structure and the form. And so I was I was wanting to talk a little bit about that. And uh, one of the things is it utilizes all these different forms and it's so discursive and to me, it's discursive. It feels like it's discursive in a nature or in a way that mimics the discursive patterning of the mind when one is immersed in a, you know, emotionally and psychologically abusive dynamic um, mm-hmm. where it feels more true to me than like a narrative that's a traditional narrative that's like, oh, beginning, climax, everything's cool now, the end, you know. Because that's not really how abuse works. And so I, I just wanted to see if you could talk about the form and how you arrived at that and then how that kind of works along with what you're writing about. Yeah, I mean, you know, for years, I, I tried to write some version of this book, mm-hmm. or at least to try to write about this material. And I really struggled because I think I was trying to tell it in a straightforward way. And it, the story was not straightforward. And yeah, it was just really, really difficult to sort of make that work. And <laughs> yeah, and it really wasn't until the structure occurred to me that that suddenly I the whole thing kind of came together. Mm-hmm. And I felt as if the book had taken a kind of shape that I could, because I feel like when I, when I'm playing with form, it's like, I'm trying to find a shape, a container that can like appropriately hold what I'm trying to put into it. And the traditional structure wasn't working for me. And I was like, Oh no, Carmen, like you can't follow up your first book with like a weird ass experimental. <laughs> wrong with you? you know, it was like this very like, and then I was like, well, I should just work on it. And like, who knows, you know, because this is before her body and other parties came out. So like, I had no, you know, I was like, I mean, who's going to buy this? Well, whatever. So I, I just sort of started writing. And, and I think that the way I, I mean, in many ways, the book, yeah, like, I think reflects a lot of the qualities of being in that relationship and also trying to f- sort of think your way out of the sort of the the terrible puzzle of it Hmm. and when when sort of thinking back onto like what happened and like how could things have gone differently and like the way you sort of go in circles and circles and you know part of the project was trying to figure out like where do I fit 
like where do I fit in history? Like where do I fit in my community, my queer community? Mm -hmm. Like where, you know, where do I belong in this tradition of artists, artists who've experienced domestic abuse, queer people who've experienced domestic abuse? Like, like, you know, where, where does all that go? And so I think, yeah. And so it just took, it took getting it kind of broken up. I mean, it, it took, it took it having the trauma sort of reflected in the structure for me to really feel like I suddenly had so much to say. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really quite extraordinary how like I struggled so hard. And then when I found the right container, it all came out. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, it's so weird. Cause it's like, I can't really explain it except that like, my, it's what my brain needed, you know? Yeah. It like allowed that, that space or that room for it to. Yeah. And it had been germinating all of that time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I mean, like, yeah, a lot of that was probably happening, like, behind the scenes in my brain. Uh-huh, <laughs> Where uh-huh. I was just thinking about it and and not really consciously in any conscious way, but just like, sort of mulling over it. And then, yeah, once the structure occurred to me, everything really came together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like one example of that I appreciated was in the, the Choose Your Own Adventure, Dream Houses. Was, is it Dream Houses Choose Your Own Adventure? Yeah. Is that the mm-hmm. title? Yeah. yeah Where, you know, there's the, all of the options, but none of them like lead to the desired outcome at the end. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was actually, you know, that chapter was really interesting because I, I I knew I wanted to do a choose your own adventure. I I had, there's this um, author I really love, Kevin Brockmeyer. I don't know if you know his work. I've heard of him, but I haven't read his work yet. Yeah, he's great. He's this really beautiful, fabulous. I really, really adore him. And he has this uh, short story, a fictional short story called The Human Soul is a Rube Goldberg Device. And it is mm-hmm. a choose your adventure short story. And he had a lot of really beautiful sort of moments and gestures in there that I really admired that I wanted to sort of, you know, do my own version of or think about while I was working on my own chapter and then I also had this idea early on, like some in some notebook somewhere, I have like a, this thing written in big letters that I've like underlined five million times. <laughs> so it just says like gaslight the reader. Ooh. And I was like really interested in trying to create an experience that was sort of hostile to the reader trying to make in the way that, you know, mm-hmm. like in a way that sort of mimicked the experience of being in the relationship. And I sort of went through a bunch of different sort of drafts of that or like things that I thought about doing and then I realized that choose your adventure was actually sort of the perfect way of doing it because it it creates an illusion of choice where there is no real choice right right? and nothing make any lick of difference and you will just constantly be stuck you know Mm -hmm. um and that felt that felt like the the sort of natural sort of manifestation of that idea Mm -hmm. so that's what I did Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Another thing you were you were just talking about this a bit, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit more maybe about your process in terms of research, because you talk about, you know, scouring archives and looking for examples and even looking for examples in queer histories and queer stories of women that weren't explicitly about abuse, but just to kind of like see like where these narratives exist And it makes me think about how, and you address this in the book, but how hard it is when abuse happens within communities that are already marginalized. But then if the cycles continue without, you know, speaking out, then people end up feeling isolated and alone. Mm -hmm. And it also makes me think about, you know, that really famous quote from Toni Morrison, whose loss still feels like super fresh um, about, you know, if there's a book that you want to read 
that doesn't exist that you have to write it. And, and I just, I wonder what you think in relationship to those, those ideas. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because, you know, I am actually not a big believer in writing books for other people. Mm. Like I writing books for yourself and, Mm. and, you know, ultimately like uh, that is my, I mean, I write a book because I want it. I need it. Got it. Um, but I do think that this book more than my first book, I was thinking about my community and I, and not necessarily, I was like, I need to write a book for everybody. But I was just sort of like, look, like, it's really shocking to me. This is not like a book that exists already. I feel like I need to write it. It feels like it's inside of me. Like it's, it's coming, it's going to come out. It needs to come out. And so if I can make it, if I can wedge myself into that space that, that like exists, I'm going to do it and I hope it's okay with everybody. And I hope if I manage to get it to do it properly, that like it gives people some, some context for themselves, which I think is what I was always looking for. was like, you know, cause I don't know if it's a comforting, but I don't think it's a particularly comforting book. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I think it does provide a kind of like, this is a thing like all I can, it's, you know, it's like, it's like, I don't know you the reader, but I can say to you, this is what happened to me. And I hope that's helpful to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I, and so it's like almost like for other people, but with like the most sort of low of state of low of expectation, like, you know, the least of expectations, you know, because I think otherwise you would just go crazy, right? Like how could you, you, you know, if you wrote a book thinking like this will save people, like you'll go completely Right, crazy. right. So, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so that was something on my mind and I was thinking a lot about, yeah, what doesn't exist and why it might need to exist and how I needed it. And I'm part of that community. So maybe somebody else needs it too. Mm-hmm. So trying to like, and there's, and it's like, also like, I should add, like, it's very hard to make art with that on your, with that on your mind. Like that's a right. really massive, stressful combination. You mean that kind of expectation? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. How the hell are you just like make anything if you're like thinking all the time? <laughs> right. And so right. in a way I kind of backed myself into a weird corner and it was very stressful and like writing the book was very stressful um, for all kinds of reasons, not just that, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was definitely a thing that was on my mind in a way that made me maybe made me a little more uncomfortable and was not quite what I was used to. Hmm. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the dedication reads, "If you need this book, it's for you," which I thought was really. I've never seen anything like that before. So yeah, I mean, I cycled through. It's so funny. I cycled through so many dedications because I was really trying to find the one that made sense. And I, you know, at some point it was like to all the these people, all the, you know, and, and I just kept hitting up, knocking up against all kinds of problems with each one of them. And then I was like, I just need to like send it to whoever needs it. And then that's the end of that. You know, that's the end of my commitment. Mm-hmm. Like I've done the thing that I was going to do that I set out to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing that I really loved about the book is the use of footnotes. And I don't actually usually like footnotes because, which is a holdover from my MFA when everybody was trying to be David Foster Wallace, um, who you also mentioned in your book in terms of his abusive behavior towards Mary Carr. But you know, they reference an index of folklore and many times they locate punishments for ter- like characters transgressions or that's part of what stuck out to me and so I was wondering if you could talk about how you arrived at that and the way that ideas of folklore and mythology came into the writing of the book yeah I mean I um I I, I was really as I was working on the book I became very fixated or, or I became very interested in the question of cliche like what do we do with mm. cliche when like 
experiences that we have had that have been sort of very singular and unique and damaging in our lives are actually like stories that a lot of people have told in variation variations of in the past mm-hmm. and like how do you reconcile the specificity of your own pain with the cl- the cliche of a thing like domestic violence right right and, and that that is really hard it's hard to write art you know it's like it's like oh my god i'm trying to write a book you know like no, i'm not just like mm-hmm. you know writing in my journal i'm not just talking to a therapist like i am writing a piece of art that is my goal and so how do you make that how do you do it when like everything is kind of working against you and i was thinking a lot about fairy tales and about sort of fairy tale taxonomy and the way in folk tales and the way that we categorize stories and why we tell stories and how they change and they adapt and at some point I stumbled across, a, not the one that I primarily use in this book, but another folk index. I use a couple in this book, but there was one that I found that had a lot of entries, but not nearly as many as the one I ended up using primarily. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting how like all these stories all fit. It's like as many folk tales as exist, like fit into, allegedly fit into these categories, right? Mm-hmm. And that was like super interesting to me. And then I found this, this really, really big, the, the one you just mentioned, and it was huge. And it was like, you know, it had, it was like a thousand pages. Like I had a piece, wow. you know, and I was like, oh my God, like this is, there is so much stuff in here. And when I would go through these entries and I would look, I would just, there would just be these like really beautiful, um, almost like prose poems that were emerging out of these, like, you know, very specific categories. And, and it just was so interesting to me. And I was like, I feel like there's a space for this in the book. And it's sort of this almost um, underlying rhythm mm-hmm. to the whole thing, like, cre- you know, creating a sense of like, like a little heartbeat or something where it's like, these are, this is a story and this is a story that's been told before and it will be told again. And like, it exists in proximity to all these other stories. And like, yeah. And it became this like really, I, I don't want to use the word fun exactly. Right. To describe it, but it was, it was actually a more relaxing part of writing the book because I got to just sort of like, there was a, there were a few days where I literally was just going through the book and like trying to like looking for spaces and like, hi, you know, highlighting things in that book and trying to like make it work. It was just really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So it ended up working out fine. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then some of the pieces that you write, uh, some of the, in the dream house pieces are either your own or adapted folk tales as another way of working into the material. I'm thinking of like Bluebeard and the queer villainy section and the queen and the squid, which I think was one of my favorite, mm. favorite sections. One of my favorite sections too. Yeah. So I'm wondering, cause you kind of, you move, you shift back and forth and the form allows you to do that. And what was your approach to writing those pieces or how did those pieces feel? Well, the queen and the squid was actually in particular, very interesting because so, so sort of the reason I did it is, is because I, I wasn't, so I have a lot of emails from my, from my ex that I, I wanted to, I felt like did a lot of, I, I don't know how to say this. Like she sort of told on herself mm. in, these emails mm-hmm. in a way that I thought was super interesting. And I did a, I tried a bunch of different ways of transforming it. So I actually, I think in one of my earlier drafts, what I had done is I had just taken all the emails, broken them up into sentences, then alphabetized the sentences and created these like big blocks of text. That was just her email sort of scrambled. And it was Mm. really interesting because when you read them that way, the sort of the narcissism of them like really like rose to the top. Like it was really weird, like rereading them out of the order she intended and just the tone of them became very clear and very cloying. And it was, it was like really interesting. Um, 
but my editor was like, it's, it, you can't like, like there's actually like law, you know, it's a copyright basically. Mm. It's like reproduce other people's emails and you have to do something else to it. And I was like, Oh my God. Okay. So I was like, okay, back to the drawing board. Yeah. And then I was like, what if I put it into the structure of a fairy tale? Um, and I just have these two characters sort of acting out these emails and acting out this sort of thing. And, and then I was really proud. And then I really loved it when I wrote it. I was super proud of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that that's that's how I came up. That's how I wrote that one. I don't know. So they all, I mean, they all have their own weird little like origin stories, I guess. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talk about the the film Gaslight and kind of the origin of that of that phrasing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've also written about that. I feel like maybe a year or two ago, in terms of like what's happening politically right now, mm-hmm. and. <laughs> I'm wondering what it was like to write this book in the space of this political moment. I mean, <laughs> in some ways, you know, in some ways it's like the timing was so perfect. It was almost terrible. Right. But like to sort of write it in the middle of a Trump presidency, to write it in the middle of Me Too, to write it in the middle of just sort of the many ways in which we're trying and failing to have conversations about things like gender and power and responsibility and justice and things like that. And so in some ways it was sort of perfect, you know, but also awful because it's like, I couldn't escape it. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I feel like there was, you know, I was like working on some edits at some point, uh, you know, and like the um, Kavanaugh stuff was going on, you know, and I was mm-hmm. sitting in my living room watching the Kavanaugh stuff, like watching her testimony and trying to work on the book and having to, and just being like, what the fuck? Like, what, mm-hmm. what are we even doing? Like, what did I even do it? Like, it was just so frustrating and it was so hard and then also like to, to, to be telling a story that I feel like there isn't a lot of space for right but also recognizing that that doesn't mean that those other stories you know like like I I feel like one of the interesting things that I learned while I was working on this book was that like you know when when queer women began to talk about uh, abuse happening within their community there was this like moment where like straight women were sort of like, well, you're taking away attention from battered women who are being abused by their husbands by trying to like turn the focus to lesbians. Yikes. Which was, yeah, like yikes. Right. And it was like really bad. It's like bad for a lot of reasons, but I think it was also, it was bad also because it was like both of those, like, yes, like battered women, like that's fucked up to say that like talking about battered lesbians takes away attention from battered straight women. Right. But like both of those groups of people are very, like are very vulnerable. And I feel like this sense of just like, I wish there was only one thing I had to focus on in terms of my anger and my outrage and my sadness, but there's too, there's too many things, you know? And it's like people who find themselves on like the marginalized end of an experience are fighting for attention, you know, Mm -hmm. because we live in a shitty world where no one can focus on more than one thing at a time. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, there's something very like depressing about that and very hard and very stressful and sad to me. And something that's something that I've never quite, I don't know, figured out. It's something I've never quite come to terms with or like really understand. And, and ultimately I feel like that's also, it's like, you know, all I can say is like, here's what happened to me. Cause like, I can't, I feel like I can't compare it to anything else. I can't, I can just say like the world is shit. People are shitty. Institutions only are interested in maintaining their own power. They're not interested in helping individual people. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Mm-hmm. 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 And so yeah, so that's just and that's I'm sorry, that's like really depressing. I feel like this I've been I've been a real Debbie Downer the past like. <laughs> well, I feel like truth telling is important, and sometimes the truth is hard and uncomfortable. You know, 
Yeah. And it's not the entirety of the situation, but it's definitely feels like so prominent right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was having, I was talking to a friend last night and he was like, why, why can't I be happier in my life? It seems like that could be easy. And I'm like, well, no matter what's going on in your life right now, we're in this environment that's toxic and it's, it's so overwhelming. So anyway. Yeah. And that makes me think too of, you know, you talk about only telling your, you know, about, okay, what I can do here is tell my story. And there's, I think it's the shortest one in the book, but it, it, the one dream house is epiphany, which speaks about most types of domestic abuse as legal. And I'm thinking about like the insidiousness of emotional and psychological abuse and the ways in which those are invalidated often um, by both, I think both culturally and also by people that you thought would understand, you know, so what did you hope to what did you hope to convey about that in in the way that you approached the book? I mean, I think for me, it was about talking about how in the same way that I feel like I didn't have a space, there was not really a sort of a cultural space, you know, in terms of queer domestic violence or talking about queer domestic abuse, that in the same way, like, <laughs> uh, we just don't have, we also don't have a lot of space. Like we're, we're very focused on like abuse being this like very specific thing mm-hmm. and the full extent of it and like depth and range of it and the potential potential violence of it is so um, misunderstood. And I, there's, I mean, there's a quote that I, I can't remember where it is for life, I mean, but there's a quote in there where I talk about like, yeah, basically how like, if you if you discount that part of it, which is like so much of it, then like it, it becomes just like, well, did they hit you or not hit you? And I feel like this is sort of the, this is also a thing that I feel very strongly about in terms of like Me Too, where people get really focused mm-hmm. on like legal questions. Like they're like, was it legal or illegal what that person did? Oh, if it was legal, illegal throw the you know put them in jail and throw a key and if it was legal then who cares and it's like oh no there's like an entire spectrum of human behavior between and legality has like literally nothing to like like the you know it's like why are we looking to the legal system for guidance about how to be human beings you know and why is it not okay to say like this wasn't illegal but it was fucked up you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and why is it like why is that that we don't that we get so focused on like this very sort of technical element of it instead of like the spirit of human relationships, you know, and I don't know. And that really bothered me. And it really bothered me both because it was my partially my own experience, you know, in that like most of the things that happened to me, you know, weren't illegal. And that's doesn't mean that they weren't real. It just means that they, you know, she couldn't have been arrested for it, which is like a fairly extremely low bar to set. Right. Right. You know, but regardless, like is a, you know, and so I, so I feel like there's just something about that, that, really was bugging me and and I and I remember like writing that I remember like starting that chapter like the dream house's epiphany and I wrote that sentence and then I was like what else do I have to say about that and then I was like nothing I have nothing else to say about that and I just like go to the next one and I just left it there because I was like yeah like that's the epiphany you know that's the thing is it's like mm. and you know I talk about how like in Gaslight like the stuff that he does to his wife like none of it is illegal you know right. like like the most famous cultural example we have about domestic abuse is he, you know, all I mean, he does illegal things, but like to her, like he, it's he's mostly just fucking with her head the whole time, right? And like that's not illegal. It's not illegal to fuck with someone's head, but right, you know what I mean. And so I, I feel like right. we just really, 
people are just very dense about this sort of thing and they just don't, un- and I think people don't, or they haven't thought about it. And if it hasn't happened to them, they're like, I'm pretty sure I'm, I know that words don't hurt people. Okay. Well, if that's what you think, but that's not true. Right. Yeah. Right. There's that, there's that piece there, like in that section, I feel like there's, there's a phrasing, like he didn't have something like he didn't have to, lock her up because he made a prison of her mind yeah exactly and yeah and yeah the the terror of that experience yeah yeah so you use a lot of epigraphs in the book and you had three in the front including one from Zora Neale Hurston if you're silent about your pain they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it and I'm wondering how the writings of others helped orient you in your process or or how those those epigraphs yeah, I, I love an epigraph. I think so. I have eight in this book, which I think okay. is some sort of it's definitely a personal record, but I don't know if it's I don't. But yeah, I, I love them too. use all the epigraphs. I think they're yeah. great. I, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I think I mean, other people's writing is so integral to how I work, like mm. the reading of other work that it it feels impossible. I mean, honestly, I, I had more epigraphs that I had to take out mm-hmm. because like I, I just there were so many like things I was reading that were like really like opening up my brain or like turning my head on, on, you know, over upside down or like making me think differently about a lot of stuff or just like lines that just like chilled me to my core that felt really like real to like what I was writing about. And there's something about that. That's so, I mean, it's exciting. It's like, I, I love being able to like read other people's writing and like it inform what I do. And that's, I mean, that's what I do. Like that's my whole, I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's how I work as an artist. So like, it feels mm-hmm. weird to like not have 50 epigraphs, you know? Right. I wish I could have had more. Right. Yeah. Well, and that makes me think about like the way in which you integrate pop culture and art um, into your writing. Like, for example, it's especially heinous. Is that right? Your story with SVU, which I had never seen, but I found it. I don't know if that's a bad or a good thing, but I found it like really compelling even though I had like very little context for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then also in this, in, in the dream house, it's dream house as pop song, I think. And it's, um, or pop single and it's about voices carry. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's so many points of entry, particularly in this book, but in other pieces that, that come through pop culture. So I'm just wondering how that gets, how that's integrated um, into your process. And do you have like an ongoing collection of things that you're thinking of that you're kind of keeping tabs on? Or is that, does that come out in the process of writing? I think it just depends. I mean, the voices carry stuff was something that I was like, I, I, I remember at some point literally just like reading a detail about the fact that that was initially like somebody had someone written something that was like, Oh, it was about a woman. And I was like, really? That's so interesting. And I just sort of filed that away mentally, you know? Um, and then of course, when I was writing the book, then I had to like hunt down this like web, it was like a whole process. And then other things, like I actually like the one about Star Trek, like actually that was an episode that like I happened to just watch while I was like at a residency finishing up, not Mm. this book, my first book when I had just started writing in the dream house. And I just happened to like watch this episode of Star Trek that was actually quite like, like I was like very devastated by, and then I realized I wanted to write about. And so I like made a note to myself about writing about that you know Mm -hmm. um 
And some of it was stuff that I discovered, like, as I was doing research, gaslight, you know, I knew I wanted to talk about gaslighting, because mm-hmm. I had written that a piece that you mentioned that I ended up sort of adapting into this, the chapter about gaslighting, or the pieces about gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And the more I read about gaslight, then I read about Jet Cooker, and then I read about more about, like, other movies that he had done. You know, I, I feel like it's just, like, tr- it's just, like, paying attention, keeping your eyes open, writing things down, following leads, looking in the footnotes, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. reading new books, watching new stuff, you know, I mean, I feel like that's, it's, that's the process for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you have any things that like any cultural artifacts that you're obsessed with right now? Oh, I have so many, but I don't want to give any away because it's some stuff that I'm working on right now. Um, okay. I guess that's one I could say, which is like, I just finished a short story about the Grand Guignol, which is like a thing that I learned about in the last couple of years that I've been very obsessed with. Cool. Um, yeah. 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 I I saw in an interview you were talking about your grandfather as an influence and his storytelling and also about getting a copy of A Hundred Years of Solitude and that kind of being a transformative moment for you in terms of what you could do with storytelling. Mm-hmm. And then you said this thing which I thought was really cool of you know how do you tell interesting stories you puncture through reality and you let magic and weird stuff and ghosts bleed back through yeah I guess I wanted to hear more about magic and surrealism and and that as a ongoing thread in your work yeah I mean I think I am yeah I'm I'm just very interested in 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 the ways in which we leave we leave this world for something else and I think that's true both in fiction and in nonfiction and you know I was really interested in writing the memoir just about yeah like thinking about magic as it's sort of you know so like pulling in like the Alice in Wonderland stuff or whatever um and that's true with my fiction as well it's like everything that I'm writing I mean so right now I'm working on some historical material mm-hmm. so a lot of it is like coming from research and it's but then I would like wanted to introduce all these like other sort of magical elements because they're very interesting to me and they they sort of help me help me like find the stories and make the turns that I want to make to sort of tell to do what I want to do. That makes mm-hmm. any sense. So I don't know. It's just always been the way I function. It's always been the way that I've the way that I've worked as a writer, you know, successfully as an adult, you know, that it's always there's always been some element of something weird you know there sort of has to be and I think it's just like you know I cut my teeth on that as a really young kid and then like it was such an integral part of like my adolescence and and it just continues to be the thing that I'm most interested in and obsessed with and mm-hmm. I don't know it just I feel like it makes me it, it intrigues me and interests me in a way that nothing else does mm-hmm. and who are the other writers that you admire who are also in that realm that you like to read or look or look at yeah oh oh my god so many yeah. um Yoko Ogawa Toni Morrison uh Karen Russell Kelly Link Shirley Jackson, Patricia Highsmith, Angela Carter, um, uh, (laughs) Kevin Brockmeyer, yeah, so many. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, what are you most excited about next? Um, I'm excited to go back to writing fiction. Yeah. (laughs) I can't wait. Yeah. 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 And that's the historical pieces are you working are you do you usually work on more than one project at a time I work on a lot of stuff at a time yeah. yeah so I'm looking forward to getting to all the things that I haven't been able to work on mm-hmm. like the last couple of years because I've been doing all the memoir stuff so I'm looking forward to getting into that 
What would be some things that some advice that you would have for young queer women writers? You know, you sort of have to know where you're coming from to know where you're going. Like, make sure you know, like, what other queer writing is in the world. Read as much as you can and write the stories that you really want to see. Don't let anyone tell you that they have no value or that they're not going to have wide appeal. Like, just write them. I want to thank Carmen Maria Machado for speaking with me today on The Matriarchitects. Thanks to Jillian Bassett, whose voice you hear at the beginning and end of our episode. I also want to thank all of you for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can share the podcast with a friend or post about it on social media. We'll be back after the holiday next week with a new episode. I'm Lisa O'Neill. Thanks so much for joining us and listening to The Matriarchitects. You can subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your listening platform, and you can support the project by sharing this episode, leaving a review, or finding The Matriarchitects on Patreon. Let's continue to build a world where people of all genders can live their fullest, most purposeful lives. See you next time.